Have you ever had two jobs at the same time? Have you felt what it is to finish work only to immediately head off to another shift somewhere else? What about being in a situation where you were expected to juggle roles simultaneously, to work at one job while also being on duty for another? Prior to the onset of COVID-19, approximately 8% of workers had more than one job. But that's not what this episode is about. Today, rather than exploring the experience of people who have two paid jobs, I'll be talking about parents who are also working professionals. According to FlexJobs.com, as of 2019, 89% of dads and 55% of mothers were employed full-time, with 72% of mothers being employed in some capacity. And a significant percentage of the working parents surveyed reported that they feel as if they're failing both at home and at work. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, a childless workaholic. Before we delve into today's topic, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from the ancestral lands of the Lenape people and to thank Indigenous people, past, present, and future, for their resilience and their contributions to a nation that was built on stolen land using stolen labor. This is episode six of season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, brought to you in partnership with Temple University's Fox School of Business Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, Sedwick. This episode is Employee by Day, Parent by Day and Night, the Consummate Balancing Act. In today's episode, you'll hear from a number of working parents about their experiences navigating working while parenting and parenting while working and the various pressures that they face. To be clear, these challenges differ depending on the job, the industry, the level of familial and social support, and a host of other factors, including the ages of a person's children. But many times they begin even before the child is born. I kept reading about these companies that were offering fairly generous parental leave packages for new parents. So I think Netflix at one point, and I'm not sure exactly what it is currently, but at one point they were offering up to an entire year of leave. So basically you could take as much or as little as you want in the first year after the birth and or adoption of a child, sort of come in and out of the workplace as it worked for you. And a lot of the big tech companies were doing the same, not quite as generous, but 16, 20 weeks, something like that. And I kept thinking, given the background of parental leave in the U.S., so we have no federal paid leave for the majority of our workforce. So we have unpaid leave basically as our offering in the U.S. And so it's a huge advantage, right, for companies to do this. And I kept thinking, wow, that's really amazing but I wonder how it works in practice, right? I wonder what actually goes on in these companies. I hear from friends at law firms even that they have children and then performance reviews, there are issues that, you know, the term commitment comes up a lot, right? And are you as committed as you could be? And that seems to follow the birth or adoption of a child fairly regularly. And so I kept thinking, wow, they're offering these really generous leave packages, but I wonder in practice what's happening. I wonder if people are taking them. I wonder if the company culture is such that people feel comfortable taking it, right? And I wonder if there's retaliation going on for taking these, this type of leave. 
That was Natalie Peterson, Associate Professor of Legal Studies at Drexel University's Labau College of Business, Vice President of the Employment Law Section of the Academy of Legal Studies in Business, and Secretary of the Mid-Atlantic Academy of Legal Studies in Business. Natalie's research found that parents, especially or perhaps primarily working mothers, are often penalized for prioritizing parenting over quote-unquote professionalism. There's a lot of psychological research on sort of the ideal worker. And so when I looked into that, I found a lot on stigma, that there's a lot of stigma attached to an employee deciding to take leave, deciding to work flexibly, all of those things that there's sort of this ideal worker image. And and I'll speak specifically to the U.S., but we have this ideal worker image, right, that Work is the center of our employees' lives. We want them to be fully committed. We want them in person. We want that FaceTime. Now, of course, all of this was pre-COVID, but this idea that we want people there, we want them available fairly readily at many hours that might even be outside of what we think of as normal work hours, especially for higher paying, higher level jobs, right? There's this expectation that you're there, you're available, you're sort of at the beck and call of your employer. And that's this ideal worker. And so, of course, the employee that decides to take extended leave, right, or to work flexibly is deviating from that image. And the studies have shown that there's punishment for that, that in terms of advancement, in terms of opportunities, potentially in terms of pay, right, that workers who deviate from that ideal worker norm tend to be punished or at least not rewarded as heavily as those that don't. Likewise, Sabrina Volpone spoke about the image of the assumed ideal worker and how it can be used to make mothers feel inadequate or feel like they have to choose between achieving their professional aspirations or being what others view as a good parent. Sabrina is an associate professor in the Organizational Leadership Division at the University of Colorado's Leeds School of Business and a diversity researcher who uses both qualitative and quantitative methods to understand how organizations manage their diverse workforces and how diverse individuals flourish through management of their identities at work. There's a lot of work on mixing, being able to integrate the motherhood identity and that worker identity and how there's a lot of barriers to be able to do that compared to the roles that are naturally visualized when we think of, oh, a woman in society, a productive woman, you know, having those two roles merge, it's very hard to wrap our heads around uh, given the normalized view and ideals and roles that have been popularized over history. Even prior to the experience of becoming parents, there's the experience of conception or for many, adoption. The adoption process requires a significant degree of vetting, paperwork, and possibly travel. It's expensive, time-consuming, and emotional. As for conception, as many as one in eight couples struggle to conceive, and as a result, many may need to avail themselves of medical care that requires missing work, leaving early, or emotional or mental health breaks, especially after a failed IVF cycle or a miscarriage. Here's Natalie again. There was a Supreme Court case decided not too long ago, but Young versus UPS that was looking at pregnancy discrimination. And it involved a woman who had gone through several rounds of IVF and she sort of used all of her time off to do that. 
and then got pregnant and wasn't able to lift as much. And so she was asking for an accommodation at work. And they basically said, you've used all of your time off. We can't accommodate you. And so you basically have to go unpaid leave until the birth of your child. I mean, it's certainly even sometimes for people, the process of getting pregnant is difficult. And the FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act, I would think would cover some of the absence for that, but it's unpaid. This is the problem we keep coming up against in this country is that our federal leave is for the vast majority of workers is unpaid. Even if you're covered by the FMLA, the Family and Medical Leave Act, which doesn't cover all employees, it certainly doesn't cover self-employed individuals or people in the gig economy. And there are other restrictions for being covered as well. But even if you're covered, you can get up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave. And that just doesn't work for many people. For individuals who embark on the path of parenthood, whether intentionally or unintentionally, the experience can be economically devastating. According to Zippa.com, 54% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, which means that unpaid parental leave results in a cascade of consequences. Sure, by granting new parents time off and keeping their jobs open so they can return to work after the birth or adoption of a child, companies are technically offering them support. But unpaid leave doesn't help people provide financially for themselves or their families. And it certainly doesn't ease their financial burden or even help them return to work at the optimal time for themselves and their child or children. And that transition back to work is critical. Having positive experiences of parental leave and reintegration into the workforce improves employee retention, work satisfaction, and mental health outcomes. Lori Wu is an associate professor at Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, whose research focuses on service experience design and marketing and technology innovation and digital marketing, with special emphasis on diversity and inclusion issues and gender equity in the workplace. As a working mother, Lori's personal experiences have motivated her professional interests in working towards better parental leave policies and parental support initiatives for others. I work for the School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management at Temple University. I luckily have two young children. One is right now five-year-old, and the other is five-month-old. So during both times, I would say that I had amazing experiences during the maternity period, uh, not only in terms of receiving abundance of family support, but also with the collegial support, um, as well as the organization's support in terms of work and family balance as well as, you know, paid leave and everything. But at the same time, I'm conscious that this kind of experience, this it could be a lux for other individuals and could be a lux for people working for other organizations. So we are, as a team, uh, we, of course, we would uh, research team. We're also friends. So we would talk about our experiences while we are trying to get the little one, try to raise up the little one and make sure they're happily fed. 
at the same time, we want to make sure that we dedicate to our students, dedicate to our work, so that we are balancing work and family both in a positive and energetic way. So that's why the research team gathered together and say, hey, you know what, maybe we can do a research project on that and listen more widely into how other female mothers um, and other how females as well as working mothers experience their maternity leave as well as beyond and think about how they get away from the experience and be more motivated to achieve more. According to the International Labor Organization, more than 120 countries around the world provide paid maternity leave and health benefits. The United States is not among them. And how nations support parental leave has implications beyond the individual family. It is reflective of an ideological perspective. When parents don't receive leave compensation, what are we saying about the value of parenting as compared to the value of professional endeavors? Here's Lori again. One of our research projects, we look into different countries, uh, maternity leave policies, or really sometimes in other countries, it's not only maternity leave, but parental leave and paternity leave, which has really meaningful implications for the whole society as well as for the labor force. We do see that by we, I think it's not only our research team, but also it's a shared observation really across the society is that countries really diverge in terms of their policies and support for the young family, for the young mothers and young parents in terms of nation-level support. There are absolutely countries who provide better support policies. So there are longer paid leave periods as compared to the U.S., the FMA Act of 1993 required U.S. organizations with 50 or more workers to offer up to 12 weeks of unpaid maternity leave. So that's unpaid maternity leave. Now you think about all these young families and young parents who need financial support during this relatively challenging period of their life. And probably there are also other concerns, not only financially, but also stage of life concerns. So maybe we can do better as a country to provide better support as a whole society and all these organizations we work together to provide expectant mothers as well as families with better support so that not many of them would have to end up leaving the workplace, maybe temporarily maybe permanently, just so that they can raise a family. And Natalie. I do know that in terms of leave, I think the EU has something like 22 weeks of paid leave, right? I think the average for like OECD countries is 18 weeks of paid leaves. I mean, we're certainly looking at a huge disparity between nothing <laughs> paid, right? At least, and I should say on the federal level, some states do have at least a percentage of leave that can be paid for childbirth or adoption. But yeah, I mean, I think just seeing the value that's placed on work in the other countries, right? That I think allows parents to feel like, you know, I would imagine that even when you go back to work that you're supported, right? And that what you're doing as a parent is valued just as what you're doing in the workplace is valued, right? And that that you have that support. And we're just not seeing that from, I guess we're seeing a little bit from employers here who are giving these voluntary packages, um, but certainly not really from the government. Mystify diversity, making work safe for you and me. 
Shoulder to shoulder we embark Invite the light to send the dark Let's embrace one another Single colleagues, working mothers People of all points of view Can we see each other? The consequences of having a social structure that does not financially support expectant parents are that the American labor force is being shaped in such a way that certain individuals are being pushed out or pushed down. Many mothers specifically have left the workforce to parent full-time because being employed outside the home was untenable for them, and many others will spend their professional lives existing beneath a concrete ceiling because that's the only way they can juggle their work and childcare responsibilities. I think the statistics are really powerful. So I would like to share with you some of the statistics that we gathered from other sources. For example, we found that according to U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics 2020, more than 40% of expectant mothers end up leaving their jobs due to post-maternity challenges. And we also found that in the U.S., thinking about focusing on the tourism and the hospitality industry, while more than 50% of 9.2 million hospitality and tourism employees are women, only 5% of CEOs and 9% of presidents were women. At the same time, we also see a part of the statistics showing that 11% employees in leisure and hospitality have access to paid family leave. These numbers do provide us information that we would like to look into the matter. These numbers, statistics are very important. But after all, we want to bring attention back to individuals. We want to understand their experiences and we want to empower their voices and want to make sure no matter it's a challenge or maybe it's a positive transformative experience, we would like to provide a channel for their voices to be heard. Yes, individual stories and experiences and statistics are important. Natalie had a few more statistics that are worth noting, and she shared about the impact of these statistics on the lives of parents as well as on future generations and on society as a whole. I'm trying to remember the statistics, but I think it's something like 58% of American workers are covered by the FMLA, but only like 45% of that can take advantage of it because it's unpaid. So starting in October 2020, I believe there is an option of paid leave for federal civil workers. So I think that's about 2 million workers. So that was an advancement in the right direction, but that's still only federal workers. So it's still leaving the vast majority or all of private workers open to this unpaid leave. And I think, yeah, the struggle is that as much as a new mother or a new father might want to have that time with their child, they just can't afford to do it. And the studies are really interesting about sort of the consequences of leave so that we see that in families where leave is taken, the mother tends to stay in the workforce longer once she goes back because it's been an easier transition back. She's felt like she's had that time and then can move back into the workforce, but after having that time to really bond with the child. So we see that we see that breastfeeding rates are higher because it's just when you're home, it's much easier than having to try to pump at work, right? It's difficult. Even infant vaccination rates and staying on their schedules with their pediatrician from the very beginning are better. And so health of the infant tends to be better. And then there's sort of longer term looks at IQ scores and things like that in families where leave has been available and used. I think long-term implications of 
having leave available. I think sometimes we think of it as it's really costly to businesses, right? And it's beneficial for the worker and their family, but it's also beneficial for society. And so just some of the things to think about when thinking about whether leave should be in some way paid. Natalie mentioned breastfeeding, which is natural and healthy for both parent and child. Yet there remains societal and workplace stigma around parents who breastfeed. In fact, Sabrina specifically studied the impact of biases around breastfeeding and the ramifications of that bias in the workplace. In some of my work around breastfeeding, my co-authors and I looked at stigma and how that's involved with returning from work, going maybe on a break to pump breast milk and things like that. And in doing that work, we found some other researchers who were approaching the same idea from a different angle and showing and establishing that a lot of times because of how society approaches the topic of breastfeeding, one of the most common reactions that they saw in a lab with these special cameras is to see that disgust, which is an emotion that you can't really fake. I mean, you know, your eyebrows raise, your eyes get bigger. You just kind of usually like take a step back, even with your head. Disgust is something that's very hard to fake. And it's so interesting to see how the exposure we've had to society's different representations of things, whether that's a leader who is not the prototypical, quote unquote, ideal employee, which is a white male who's heterosexually able-bodied. There's been a lot of literature on that. Someone who is kind of questioning those norms and those natural ways that we process what is correct or authentic or expected in the workplace of our leaders, of our coworkers, even of ourselves sometimes. Oh, I can never be a leader. I don't look like the 45 white males that have come before me or, or something like that. A lot of times we see that emotions and how society has presented these images, normalized these images of what does breastfeeding look like? Well, it sure as heck doesn't look like a mom going to a room on the top floor and taking work time out to go and pump. That, that's not the normalized image that we see. The more society invests in creating workplace environments where being a working parent is normalized, the easier it will become for parents to articulate their needs and to avail themselves of the support that will enable them to raise healthy, happy children while optimizing workplace performances. And to be clear, the onus for support shouldn't be entirely on employers. And in fact, I don't mean to suggest that all working parents require accommodations at all. Like any identity cohort, parents and prospective parents want and need different things, depending on their own unique situations. Here's Lori again. Individuals are different in terms of your work support as well as your family support. And family support is the very important component of this whole process. Uh, we see that there are cases where it's the single mom and who's raising the children and yet was getting the support uh, from the wider family, from the grandparents. We also see cases where both parents are very involved in the process of raising the kid. And we also see a very important interplay 
between both the family support as well as the organization support through that process. I think what we definitely see is that the first time mothers, as compared to the second time experiences, when they're contrasting their experiences during the first time and the second time, there is a huge difference. And very interestingly, we do see that the second time around, the mothers are more mentally prepared. They are prepared to give. What we are glad to see is that they're also bringing more attention back to self-care because your self-happiness is the key and the foundation to giving out your love for the young children as well. So I think in terms of from that perspective, organization support as well as family support. So in weaving that together in a systematic effort, that is crucial to make sure that the young mothers the young fathers, uh, the young family knows what they're going to experience and how to navigate through. These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti-aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who at every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real-world, local, and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. 
So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu ddp for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce with options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu slash ddp to learn more. I asked my mother, Sunny Taylor, a decades-long entrepreneur with an at-home accounting practice with a few hundred active clients who raised two daughters, including yours truly, and is the content editor and creative collaborator for this podcast, how she navigated being a single working mother after I was born 39 years ago. Since then, she's been working from home while also taking care of me and then later my sister. But back to raising me. Sunny told me that parental support and sibling support were instrumental to her parenting, especially early on. People listening to this might have a conception of what that would look like in mm-hmm. 2021, 2022, 2023. But what did it look like to be a stay-at-home working parent in 1983? Because it was very different. Right. Well, I do have to say I was fortunate you know, my dad, by that time, my mom had died and he had remarried and divorced, but my dad was living in our town and I had four other siblings still living with him that were younger. So he welcomed me back into the house. But of course, I still had to support myself and my child. So I did child care. I found a family who wanted someone every day to take care of their kids, like pick them up from school, keep them for the afternoon, drop them off, have them on the weekend sometimes. And then somehow, I think it was at a softball game, and one of my brother's friends mentioned he needed a copy editor, and I've always been pretty good at editing, so at night, he would come by my house, drop off his work for the day, and I would sit there at night after he had gone to sleep and do some copy editing, and then he would pick it up. I'd leave it in the door. He'd pick it up at six in the morning on his way to work. So for me, it was just like, what could I do to be home with my daughter? And I fortunately living with my dad childcare money and this copy editing was enough. And then when he ended up moving out of the area and my other siblings got their own housing arrangements, I found a place. It was not large. So that's the thing. It was a small apartment and it was two bed, I guess three rooms that I could make into bedrooms, but I had to get a roommate because I couldn't afford the whole rent by myself. So I was always willing to do whatever it takes. And one time this woman She came by to to drop something off to me and she said, oh, you're so lucky you get to be a stay-at-home mom. You get to stay with your daughter. Well, she drove up in her Mercedes. Her husband has a Mercedes. They live in a big house. And I looked at my little apartment and I said to myself, I just thought, well, it was what I was willing to do. Like she had her priorities, which involved, you know, things that cost more money. And I just didn't care about that as much as staying home with you. My mom managed to juggle working from home while also being a stay-at-home parent until I went to kindergarten, at which point she began working out of the house while I was at school, but maintained the job flexibility to be home when I was home. She did this while being a single mom for 11 years before meeting and marrying my now ex-stepdad. 
Many single parents represent a vibrant and integral part of the American workforce. According to a 2020 article by Very Well Family, approximately 80% of custodial single parents are mothers. And of those, approximately 50% work full-time, while roughly 30% work part-time, and the remaining 20% are not employed at all. Rocky Maynor, a licensed financial coach, speaker, and workshop facilitator who previously worked as a human resources executive, shared about her experiences as a parent of four. And she told me that when she was a single mother raising her eldest daughter on her own and working as a human resources professional, she was initially reluctant to let a new prospective partner into her life. The man who became that partner, Jeff Maynor, is now her husband. They've been married since October of 2011. Jeff is a financial services professional and full-time entrepreneur. He and Rocky share a business together. Prior to his transition to entrepreneurship, Jeff worked in IT and telecommunications. And prior to that, he served eight and a half years in the United States Navy. You'll hear both Jeff and Rocky because I interviewed the two of them together. I was a single mom for nine years. So I was like, listen, I kissed a lot of frogs. I'm not doing this. This dude, I, I see how the girls look at him. I see his swagger. I'm not, you know. So after about a year, what he learned later, but didn't know then was I opened the door, but it was because my grandmother said, she said, um, so what's in the way? Why won't you give him a shot? I was like, I don't know, grandma. I don't know. I was like, grandma, I never date for a white guy. I don't know. And she's like, Worried about him being white? She's like, girl, you, you're missing it. For working parents, it's essential not to try to go it alone, no matter how scary it can be at times to let others in, and no matter how much our society attempts to condition people to adopt attitudes of self-sufficiency, which, by the way, is an untenable expectation when you're juggling multiple important responsibilities at work and at home we'll need other people around us to be successful. And for some, that might be a partner or a spouse. And for others, it might be a family member or a friend network. And for me personally, I have been able to thrive in a dual career couple because we are committed to supporting each other's careers and supporting our family. That models what works for me. And I'm cognizant that everybody else has different models. And what I say to people when they're interviewing with me or when I'm coaching them is don't decide for your future self that you cannot do something. If you want to do something, say yes, and then create the environment where all of you can be successful. And sometimes people say to me, well, Shauna, I don't know how I'm going to do that. And I say, well, we raised our son with no family nearby. And we had two demanding careers. And it was very hard. And we figured out how to outsource what we can, delegate what we can, and get support and if that's the choice that you want to make, then, then, then let me help you figure out how to do the right choice for your family. That was Shauna Hawking, a thought leader, keynote speaker, and writer with 20 years' experience working in leadership development. Shauna is the author of One Bold Move a Day and the host of the One Bold Move a Day podcast. Stu Kreintz is a mindset, success, and relationship coach who works with people individually and in groups to empower them into ownership of their lives. 
Before stepping into coaching, Stu had a successful career in sales and marketing within professional baseball, having the opportunity to work for the New York Yankees and the Atlanta Braves, as well as several affiliated minor league clubs. He is also the production and development assistant for the Demystifying Diversity podcast. Stu told me that being a step-parent has stretched him in ways that have made him better personally and professionally. Stepping into this relationship, personal responsibility has increased like 100x. Maybe the freedom, maybe the illusion of choice that I might have had in terms of, oh, I don't absolutely have to get this done today. Or like, oh, I I don't absolutely need to get back to this person today. I can wait till tomorrow. That's gone because it's not just me. And I cannot get away with not being my best self every day. And it's everything top to bottom from I get to eat well, I get to focus on sleep, I get to manage my energy, be mindful of how I'm responding to the various things that come up when you're parenting and also building a relationship with a person. Suddenly it is bigger than me inherently everything is bigger than me and it actually puts more of a focus on the long term where is this going than what am i doing today it becomes what am i doing to further us to where we want to go as a family and by the way my partner has goals too and dreams and a vision and it isn't just how do we create wins for me. It's how do we create wins together that also serve our family. For Rocky and Jeff, creating a blended family has enabled them to develop different skills as well. And they were open about the transition not always being easy. So we have yours, mine, ours. So almost 21-year-old daughter, almost 21-year-old son, my bonus baby. And then we have the nine and seven. Yeah, a lot to keep up with. We started the journey over. Now we continue the journey. Continue the journey. We continue the journey. We start over. We we continue the journey. I used to say I started over and then I realized I was getting wrinkles and I was like, nope, I continue the journey. They told me about how Jeff's relationship with Nandi has evolved over time. My daughter saw us kissing and she was like, get off my mom, get off my mom. Leave her alone. I know. Oh, it was awful. It was awful. She was what, seven at the time? Seven to eight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Time flies. Yeah. Yeah, So we've been together 13 years. So, yeah. Is she still like, get off my mom? Or like, how did you tell me about that transition? They're like buddies. Uh, And I'll let you tell how your relationship has morphed. But our younger ones, like COVID. So Jeff's been with her the whole time. And her dad has somewhat of presence. He's not like present, present. He lives in Baltimore. We met in college and we were college sweethearts and it just didn't work. With Nandi and Jeff, at first, he would go to father-daughter dances. She would ask him, hey, would you go to dance with me? That kind of thing. As things got serious, she was like, okay, this is going to be my dad. When he proposed the pictures of her smile, you could fit a banana in her mouth sideways. She was so like, yeah. And then the, when the littles came, oh my gosh, she is like the best big sister ever. So she went to college, COVID shut down her first year. She came home. She was home for about a year. And then she moved back up to Richmond. Her and Jeff worked on the homeschool, the activities for the kids. She did camp, no bummer, summer. So they worked together. I know, I know. 
I her, know. her creativity is on another level. She is such a, a bright young mind in this world. And we couldn't be more prouder of her as, as our daughter. And I, and I claim her as, as my daughter. The Maynard's story is heartwarming and humorous, yes. But let's dig beneath the surface for a moment. If we think about the skills required to move from get off my mom to building a loving father-daughter relationship, it becomes evident that what's required, patience, persistence, communication, forgiveness, integrity, and more, are all skills that have tremendous value in the workplace. Here's Lori again. I think one observation we had is that we are amazed by how female workers and female working mothers are able to cope during this very special period of time. This research, we focus on the female young mothers, but of course, we also are fully aware that, you know, fathers are fully engaged in the process as well. Uh, so what we see is that working mothers after that experience, coping with postpartum challenges, they're able to achieve self-development and growth. We clearly see that uh, individuals will relay back and say, hey, I think I have better skills in terms of time management. I can do better with multitasking. I can do better with in terms of communication and interpersonal skills. And I feel like I'm more efficient in achieving things. And also we see that them talking about it's more about a strengthening of my mindset and my, my willpower and my emotions. I feel like I'm more patient. I'm more empathetic towards people who share similar background or even who are also experiencing challenges in other ways. I feel I'm more enduring. I'm more tolerant um, in terms of chaos and also, you know, have this mindset and willpower of stronger mindset and willpower and say, I can do this. If I can bring a baby to this world, I can raise him or her up, then definitely I can achieve anything in the world. There's a perspective shift that comes with navigating any character building situation. And employers that recognize the value of supporting workers of all experiences and identities benefit from the variety of perspectives and skills that they bring to the table. Here's what Natalie had to say about that. The studies are fairly clear among all types of demographics that diversity is beneficial in the workforce, right? That we want that diversity of perspectives, right? That you don't want this homogeneous type of thought where you have people with the same life experiences that are bringing those to the workplace and then sort of thinking in the same way, right? So just as we want a diverse workforce across race and sex, orient sexual orientation and gender identity and, and ethnicity and religion, I think it also makes sense to have that across caretaking experiences, right? Because it's just another skill set. And let me tell you, my working parent friends are really good jugglers, right? So if you're looking for multitaskers, you might want to think about hiring parents, right? Because we tend to get pretty good at that and being able to do many things at once and keep all of these balls in the air at the same time. But I, I think it just is just another demographic to think about and a perspective to bring. And, and I don't think you want to eliminate, you know, a whole subset of people, particularly tends to be working mothers simply because they decided to have children. But that really, in the long term, I think for the company itself, even certainly for society, but even for the company itself, isn't going to be a good business practice. Hey, listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you've tuned in to season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. 
You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, we ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148. Just leave a message with your question or send us a note through our website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148 or message us through our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening. Christina Glickman, founder of the Extra Love Army, is a TEDx speaker, podcaster, and author of the best-selling book, Extra, The Art of Being. As a mother of four, she shared with me that motherhood has equipped her with better multitasking abilities, enabled her to become more flexible, and supported her in shifting from an attitude of constant anxiety to one of perpetual gratitude. I used to be the consummate planner. And now I'm truly like, what's today? What do we need to focus on? What it needs our utmost attention? Because the other thing I've really learned is that everything's temporary. (laughs) You can do your best to plan as much as you like, but it's probably not going to happen. So I think the way that I'm able to sort of manage all the different elements of that life and still feel very peaceful is that I really take it off like tiny chunk by tiny chunk. And I used to want to control everything. So that's another thing that I have worked on is that, and I think the pandemic was a gift for all of us in that way, because it took away so much for people. And I think looking at things in terms of not only small chunks, but the first thought will always be gratitude. And when you look at things through gratitude, your filter changes. Oh gosh, I I can't do X, Y, Z, but I'm so glad because of this. And you like force yourself to always be thinking of it in that way. Something was taken away, but what did you get from it? And so it's for me always an invitation to look at something different. Oh, you didn't get what you were hoping for there. Okay, well, how do I look at this in such a way that there's an opportunity here for me to think different? And I know that's hard, but it's practice. And I think if you you will find yourself being more peaceful if you can apply that filter. It doesn't mean you don't get to be sad and Charlie Brown it out, but I just, I want to live with more ease and joy. And that seems to help. As Christina shared, I thought back to the example I had growing up with a mother who, even though she worked a lot and must have had financial and emotional stressors, taught me by example how to be happy and productive and find enjoyment in work and in life. When you were young, I didn't work as much. And I took in two children. You were six months. One was four, one was seven. It was a brother and sister. So we just did fun things. We went to the park. We were living with my dad who lived in a community where we had access to tennis and swimming and we would cook. We would bake cookies together. So when you were younger, it was work for me and that I was making money, but it was pretty much play. And then at night I would you know, do my copy editing. And then after a while, I actually got a job and I had let my credit card run up. And I wasn't happy about that. I was mad at myself. I was just buying new cute little outfits, little girl dresses and all that. And so I said, that's not okay. How am I going to bring more money in? And I realized that if I actually, I'll tell you, it was $5,000 that it had run up. And with my meager means, that wasn't okay. So I made a plan where if I could make 
let's see, $500 a month payoff, I'd be done in 10 months with my credit card. And so that meant basically 100, 150 a week. And so I went and got a cocktail waitressing job Fridays and Saturdays at a local, a nice restaurant. And I wouldn't have to go until nine o'clock. So you're asleep. And one of my siblings would be at the house with you. And then I would work till one in the morning, get home at two. And yeah, so again, to you, you probably didn't even see that. I was pretty tired on Saturday and Sunday mornings. But other than that, it was a really nice way to be a, a working mom. I asked Sunny how she acquired her strong work ethic, and she told me she got it from her mother. In all reality, what really helped is that my mom made us get jobs when we were really young. My first one was when I was 10 years old, working as a mother's helper for 25 cents an hour. And then later that graduated to real babysitting, probably for about a dollar an hour. Later, we would spend summers on the Cape. And I was like, you could work at 14 years old if your parents would sign off for you. So I worked in a candy store mixing fudge and like a witch's cauldron. Then I graduated to chambermaiding and waitressing. And I always worked. Even in college, I was an RA of a dorm. And when I graduated there, I got a sales job with Uniroyal. It was the tire company, but I was in a different branch selling V-belts and timing belts. But because I always worked, it was just part of my life. Working was always part of my life and having a job. If we want to create a society in which people can work and be parents simultaneously, we have to create opportunities for greater equity. This is something about which Joyce Jelks, known personally and professionally as JJ, is extremely passionate. JJ is the head of people and culture at Wyden and Kennedy, New York, an Army major, the chief founding member relationship engagement manager for Sean Johnson, and founder of Ottawa Park HR Advisory. You know, having my son in undergrad, the likelihood of especially a person of color graduating is really slim. So being able to put that to the side and do it, I can now advocate for single moms in the workplace to say, you know what, we talk about inclusion and belonging and support, there's different parts of an employee, right? And even working in some, you know, sports organizations, I didn't really always share I was a parent because at some points it looked like an Achilles heel because a lot of the men would have, you know, wives working at home or wives that maybe had jobs with more flexibility. So I didn't want to seem like, okay, I couldn't deliver like these dudes next to me. So it's really interesting because now I'm like, wait a second, this person is having this or this person needs more flexible working hours because they're picking their kids up for school or they're dropping their kids off to school. And that's okay. Making it acceptable and accessible for working parents to be able to balance their obligations to their families and employers is essential. And it's also not overly difficult. All that's required are flexibility and empathy and hopefully Workplace culture is moving towards greater flexibility and employee autonomy. But it wasn't always that way. And there's still societal stigma around being a working parent, especially a working mother. In fact, in order to combat workplace pressures and biases, many working parents end up feeling like they miss out on a lot. Here are Jeff and Rocky again. My wife used to say this all the time, that she used to watch her daughter get long in the bed. Meaning she would wake up in the morning and be gone before her daughter would be getting up and she would get home so late, she would be in bed. So her daughter was growing and getting long in the bed. 
and she wasn't getting to experience her growing up vertically instead of horizontally. We had a transition mentally. So yeah, absolutely. There's a huge difference in how we parent now today too, because it's not, it's not always go, 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 go. Like the rat race. Now we, you know, we have time with our children and, and we're, we're getting that time back with our older children as well. So yeah. That transition, it's, you know, it's just a different type of parenting. In order to enable parents to be the kind of parents they want to be, while also meeting their workplace responsibilities and feeling engaged by their jobs, it's important to give people the agency to decide what they need to thrive at work and at home. Here's Lori again. I think from the research projects that we've done and the conversations we had with our informants, we can definitely see that there is divergence, not only in terms of workplace culture, but as well as individuals' preferences. Just as you said, some would say that, hey, I would really prefer a help in hand, extend it to me to drag me up and give me a pickup. On the other hand, we also see individuals say, and I would like to keep it very separate and clear, I would still like to stay very positive and professional and fully engaged in the workplace. I think either way, the most important thing is that in the workplace, we still have room and we provide information and we provide the support. They are present and the individual workers are fully aware of their accessibility to such resources. No matter it's an informal part, a form of collegial support, you know, it's maybe an informal type of association that exists among similar female workers, that it doesn't have to be a very formal organizational policy because besides collegial relationships, we're also friends. In many cases, in many organizations, we see that. I think that kind of support and friendship, besides the formal organizational support, these could be very meaningful to the individuals. Because, you know, a lot of times, based on our conversations with our informants, a lot of times female young workers, especially when it's the first time around, the challenge is more due to the fact that we are not fully aware of the possible choices, as well as the potential challenges. I think during some forms of processes where we can share this informal support, that will definitely help a lot so that individuals know that I do have the support there. It is a very friendly and supportive culture. Whenever I need, I know where to reach out for help. I think that is the crucial factor there to make the workplace supportive, but yet not too intrusive. What might it look like to provide support in a way that's helpful without being too intrusive? JJ had some thoughts based on her previous experiences as an employee at other organizations, as well as in her current role at Wyden and Kennedy. I have a couple folks on my team that, you know, they have small kids. So those other days, they can go take their kids to school, walk them pick them up from school, walk them. And it's like those things that if I had that flexibility with my son, that would have been pretty dope because I wasn't able to do that. Like he would be the first kid in daycare and sometimes like one of the last to leave because that was the environment that I was raising him in. And that's not the environment that I want to provide for our staff or like for my direct reports. Christina has had the experience of navigating being a working parent while employed by an organization, and also these days as a self-employed entrepreneur. 
Christina, because you are a mother, you're a mother of four, you're a working parent operating in many different capacities. And so can you just talk a little bit about what has that been for you to navigate parenting while also having a professional life outside of the home? Yeah. Thank you for asking. I think whether or not mother, non-mother, the balance of our commodity of time is just one that I'm so fascinated by. And I've learned that by the end of the day, what is the energy that I'm hoping to chase? And for me, it really comes down to people. And for me, it's my children and my family here. And that the balance of it, what always has to win for me is that the people that I love know and feel it. So if that gets out of whack for me, meaning I'm working too hard, I'm not checking in with the people that I love, something's wrong here. And so I think for anybody, it's very difficult to have balance. I think that most days we're off balance, but we try really hard. But I will say that my true north will continue to be that I want to show up in a place of of love and when I feel that it's off kilter, because let's be real, like we all have livelihoods, we've got work to do, it's, it's hard, but I want the balance of it at maybe the end of the week to not feel so off kilter. Because I think day-to-day balance is a tough one. Some days I'm a great mom, some days I'm a crappy one, like we can't do it all. We can't do everything perfectly and simultaneously. And the expectation that we should be able to intensifies the struggle to achieve that ever-elusive illusion of balance. Hey, listeners, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, myself, Darylise, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook, too. Happy learning. Jackie Lipton is a law professor at the University of Pittsburgh, an attorney, a literary agent at the Tobias Literary Agency, and the author of numerous academic texts, as well as Law and Authors, a legal handbook for writers, a must-read for authors looking to know their rights, increase their self-advocacy skills, and understand the intricacies of the publishing industry. Prior to moving to the Tobias Literary Agency, Jackie founded Raven Quill Literary Agency, and she shared openly about her experiences working from home while simultaneously parenting from home. Well, I've always been pretty comfortable with the remote technology because, for example, my family is all over the world. I was having Zoom calls well before the pandemic started, and I've taught online a lot before the pandemic started. So I'm comfortable with it. But I think, as everyone knows, the the downsides are that 
you never really leave your office. You never, work is always with you. And for people who are inclined to be a little type A and a little anxious and always have work on their mind, it really doesn't help because your office is your home and there's really no clear distinction. Well, that, and then, I mean, you're also a working parent. So your, your office is your home in the way that you can never really escape work, but also you can be working and there are distractions and there are are things that come with parenting. So, yeah, no, that's right. And the converse is true that you're at work, but your kids can just wander into your office and interrupt a meeting or ask to be picked up from school. Or I've always found the work-life balance difficult. And I think the word balance in that phrase is just misplaced. I mean, I just, I don't think there is a work-life balance particularly for the primary caregiver who tends to be the wife, you know, in a conventional family setting or the mother or however you want to phrase it, that's always been very difficult because the, the home demands, whoever in the, in the family is the sort of primary caregiver, those demands tend to fall disproportionately on that person, whoever they are. And then when you're physically there, there's no reason why you can't drive people around or go to the store or feed them or listen to whatever their current complaint is. Yeah, it's a big, big challenge. As Jackie pointed out, it's well documented that childcare responsibilities disproportionately fall to women. In fact, so much so that the data overwhelmingly shows that in the absence of childcare options, mothers who could not find childcare programs were significantly less likely to be employed, whereas lack of childcare had no discernible impact on fathers' employment. Liz Brown is an associate professor of law and taxation at Bentley University. She earned her BA from Harvard College and her JD from Harvard Law School and represented Fortune 100 companies for 13 years prior to joining Bentley's faculty. And Liz shared about the ways in which structural change and societal transformation are required for gender equity in the workplace and to ensure that our most vulnerable populations are taken care of. It is so important to support parents and not just assume that women are going to bear the brunt of the childcare responsibility, but to support everybody who has got caretaking responsibility. And I should say, not just parents, but all caretakers. You know, a big problem that we have in the United States, in addition to prejudice against mothers, is prejudice against daughters. There's this huge problem of disproportionate responsibility in taking care of our elderly members of society as well. When your parents get sick, it's usually the daughter who ends up taking care of those parents. So caretaking generally is a responsibility that society has treated women as having the primary responsibility for. And that just can't be the case if we want women to have full parity in the workplace. We don't live anymore in a society in which it's economically feasible to have a single earner household. So what we want women to have choice, right? But we also want men to have choice. So in a perfect world, everybody gets the ability to strike the balance that they want between caretaking responsibilities and work responsibilities. That's kind of the point of feminism, if I understand it correctly, and humanism in general, right? And the way our economy is set up, most people have to work. I mean, look at something as simple as when does school get out? School gets out at three, when or two. When do people get home from work? So who's got to fill that gap between the end of school 
and the end of the workday. We don't have a systematic approach for that kind of support. To say nothing about vacation weeks, what are people supposed to do? And if you look at the lack of open conversation in workplaces about what is meant to happen during the gap between school and home, there isn't as much of it really as there should be. So the assumption is, well, the mom's going to take care of it. The woman's going to take care of it. And that's unfortunate for women's parity in the workplace. One of the things that happens when corporate culture doesn't encourage full gender parity in the workplace or when working caregivers are discriminated against is that certain segments of the population learn that they don't have the right to dream. Most of the people in the world do not have the luxury of just like, well, I'm just going to wait till I find a job that lights me up. No, you got to pay your bills. You need health insurance. You have keep a roof over your head. You have to eat. You have to feed people. You have to do all the things that we have to do. That was Deborah Deb Atella, the author of the international best-selling book, Is This Job My Jam? The Guide for Grownups Who Still Don't Know What They Want to Be. Deb is a certified life coach, Reiki master, and meditation guide, and the host of Atella Like It Is podcast. She encourages those she works with to find things that light them up and ignite their personal passions. And she said that might involve career opportunities, but it can also be personal hobbies or interests that light people up. And she told me that modeling that fulfillment and self-actualization for future generations is important. Deb said she didn't see that modeling when she was growing up. Long before she became a parent, she learned that mothers were supposed to put their professional aspirations on the back burner. All around her, Deb saw examples of mothers who weren't lit up by their work, even though those same mothers worked a lot. Basically, all the jobs I've ever had in my entire adult life was because I knew someone or I knew someone who knew someone who got me an interview, who got me hired. I never, until I had my business, business had a job that I even one second remotely was interested in or wanted to do. I graduated high school in the mid to late 80s, and it was just expected that I go to college, right? My mom is first generation Italian-American. I was going to go to college if it killed the woman. My parents both valued education so much, but had no idea about the kind of guidance to give about what to study in school. What do you think that you, what kind of life do you even want to have? And I grew up and all the women around me were so strong and could do anything, but their jobs were secretary, librarian, nurse, waitress, No, I didn't see anybody doing like things outside of like these, I'm going to just like use air quotes, like women assigned jobs in my, Mm. in the community that I grew up in Philadelphia. Right. And all of those jobs are beautiful, amazing things and honorable, but I didn't want to do them. And so I went to college, like, what am I going to be? So I get to college and, oh my God, like, what am I going to study? And I was... (laughs) I made friends and they were all taking criminal justice and they're like, Deb, take criminal justice. It's easy. You'll like it. And I'm like, oh, be with my friends. I'll take criminal justice. So that's what I majored in. Like no real interest in it. 
Deb had no interest in criminal justice, yet she went on to become a probation and parole officer, which proved to be a volatile environment involving theft and drugs. And P.S., I'm talking about Deb's coworkers, not the people on parole. Anyway, Deb eventually left that career, took a huge pay cut, and became an insurance claims adjuster. What happened when I was there, my son, my oldest son, who's 28 now, was two and a half. And so we moved. And so now we are in a different house and I had to go away for work. And he had to leave his babysitter that he went to from when he was like five or six months old, when I returned to work after he was born and I had to put him in daycare. So now everything in his little life just blew up. He's in this new house. And all he kept saying was, I want to go home. And I kept saying, we are home. And he was saying, this is the new house. This isn't home. And then I was like, oh, yeah, right. And then he couldn't go to the babysitter anymore. And he had to go to this daycare situation. And I get this job or this insurance company and they send me away for two weeks. I have no say in it. I have to go. I have to make all kinds of arrangements between my husband's schedule. I have to get my mom, my sister, all these people involved to come and stay with this baby. It was a nightmare. He lost his baby mind and he started to act out. So then I started to see like, we just lost all this money. Like I'm not making anything now. So what am I going to work for? I'm going to work for benefits. So then we look into my husband's benefits, which weren't great, but they were still benefits. Right. And then um, what am I doing? I'm paying a dry cleaning bill and a daycare bill and gas because my job was like an hour away. So we make the decision that I'm not going to work and I become a full-time stay-at-home mom. And then over the years, I go on to have two more kids and then I start to work part-time and I do all these different things working part-time. It's easy to see how when parents are placed in no-win situations and lack workplace support, it becomes untenable to achieve their professional goals or even to have professional goals. Then again, workplace dissatisfaction isn't unique to parents. As of 2019, an approximately 85% of Americans felt dissatisfied and disengaged at work. And this was prior to the pandemic, which has led to a reduction in job satisfaction, especially among overworked caregivers. Having said that, there are a lot of parents who love what they do for work and also love parenting, parents who've been able to successfully blend those roles and responsibilities. Sharona Pearl, an associate professor of bioethics and history at Drexel University, is a historian theorist of the face and body. She's authored numerous books, scholarly essays, and freelance articles, and she believes that it's important to show others that it's possible to be fully realized across multiple dimensions. I'm working as hard as I can to normalize my parenting and to talk about my kids and make it clear that All of these are different aspects of me and the life that I lead, but I have three kids, I'm a mother, I'm a partner, I'm an observant Jewish woman. And I like to situate these things. I'm Canadian because everything that I am saying is filtered through all these facts of my life. Likewise, Leora Eisenstadt is a mother of three who is working to normalize parenting in her professional life while also modeling work satisfaction to her children. Leora is an associate professor in the Department of Legal Studies at the Fox School of Business at Temple University, a Murray Shusterman Research Fellow, the director of the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, Sedwick, 
and an assistant producer and consultant for this, the Demystifying Diversity podcast. When I was watching the Katanji Brown Jackson hearings, and she spoke in the beginning, and she had this moment where she said, I have to talk about my daughters, and I didn't always get it right, but I hope you saw that with hard work and love and determination, you can do you can do it all kind of, you can do both. That really spoke to me. I think I view it as you're not doing it all at the same time. You can do it all, but not all at once. And I have different periods of my life where I'm more focused on work and my husband picks up the slack. And then there are times when he's all in, in his professional life. And I get much more focused on the kids or that's a daily basis. There are some days when I'm doing carpool and that's it. I'm doing carpool. And I say no to meetings and the most senior level executive could want to meet with me. And I say, no, I have to pick my kid up. And so the ability to go in and out of those two identities, I think is really important. Has that cost you anything professionally? It hasn't. It has certainly guided my decisions. So I don't think I would have lasted permanently at a large global law firm. I just didn't want the kind of life where I didn't have control over when I worked. There are weeks when I work the same number of hours now that I did when I was at a law firm, but I can work late at night. I can work in the morning. I can work around my kids' schedules generally. I just have a lot more control over my life. Whereas as a litigator at a big firm, the partners run the show and the judge runs the show and you're beholden to too many people to sort of maintain that control. So it guided my move towards academia for sure. It's a much more flexible, more manageable life, but I don't think it's gotten in the way of me succeeding given my choices. Has it guided your husband's choices in the same way? I don't know. Oh, actually, that's not true. It certainly has. It definitely has. My husband's a rabbi and he's an organizational rabbi, meaning he doesn't have a congregation. He worked for many years at Hillel. And so working with college students, he worked a ton, a ton, but our lives as a family were not so affected by it. Nobody was watching my kids grow up the way you would like in the synagogue in a congregation. And he's also made decisions about where to work and when to work that are certainly guided by his desire to be a very present father. Speaking of fathers, Jeff told me that his ability to be physically and emotionally present for his children has evolved over time and that stepping into entrepreneurship has afforded him greater freedom, flexibility, and patience. Rocky also shared that entrepreneurship has afforded her the ability to be more present as a parent. I've grown both spiritually and mentally as a person, and it's made me become a better father because I don't I don't parent the same. I'm not the raging guy that I used to be when I was younger, dealing with the rat race and and the struggles of anxiety and some military things that I that I deal with. But or ex prior military things that I deal with. But for me, it's just been such a, there's a big difference in parenting before and and how we do it now. For me, it's just that corporate battle, putting Nandi into activities to keep her busy because I'm so preoccupied trying to make a life for us, you know, versus Zoe and Jackson, they're in activities now. I don't get to go to all the games. So it's not like I'm still 100% there 
parent, it's a different mindset. It's a different feeling. It's a different kind of their inactivities to be enriched versus just kept busy. Right. And with Nandi, I have these conversations with her. So she says to me, like, we just had this talk yesterday. Ah, she said this to me yesterday. She goes, um, so mom, how do you want to be remembered? And I'm like, I said, you know, she said, give me one word. And I said, perseverance, perseverance, babe. And she said, mom, you know, I am living my dream, mom, because um, I'm, God, I've just watched you ferociously go after yours. And I thanked her. I said, you have really sacrificed so much. And these littles, they don't know. They're not missing us. You know what I'm saying? She would legit miss me. And they don't have to. Everything we do, they're right there. So that to me is the difference in the parenting is our littles are right here. So much so that even things that we're watching or we're writing, they're just so actively participating. And I didn't realize that Nani was observing, but she was, but it wasn't us together. Whereas the littles, we're together. And it's, it just makes a huge difference. For those whose experiences of parenting span decades, such as Jeff and Rocky with two 21-year-olds and two kids under 10, or my own mother who had me and my sister 12 years apart, parenting experiences the first time around tend to be different than they are years later with a second wave of offspring, because professional lives also tend to be different. I asked Sunny whether parenting me was different than parenting my little sister. It really was different because then we were a family of four because it was Tyla and my husband and then you and me. But I remember what was very nice is that at three o'clock you'd walk in from school when you were like 12 years old and um, I could hand her off to you and you would love playing with her. And you actually got me in trouble with all the parents, the middle school parents When you would talk about your sister, I would come in to say hi to you and bring her. And then they all went home and asked their parents if they would have another baby. So I became very unpopular with the parents. Yeah, it was different. I started working for a company outside of the home. But again, only when Tyler got to be, you know, of school age and only during the hours when she was at school. And every year during my review, they would say, well, you're coming on full time this year, right? And I would say, no, I'm not. I'm going to be home with my daughter but having a husband that was a little bit and then by that time we had a house and then we had rental properties so just the responsibility on all levels there was just so much so many more working pieces that it was it was more of a juggling act yeah definitely it was more of a juggling act If we want to provide working parents with the resources they need to be able to juggle their responsibilities at work and at home, it helps to create environments where diverse identities and experiences are celebrated. Equity is incredibly important, as is dismantling bias and scrutinizing how organizations and the individuals employed by them react in the moments when the parent identity becomes visible in the workplace. Here's Liz again. One of the things that is challenging about coming back to work after the pandemic is that so many of us have opened our homes to our employers because we've been participating by Zoom. And so the line between what's private information and what is workplace appropriate or workplace related or limited to the workplace is blurry. And that can be good. 
I think that can be humanizing. I think there are a lot of potentially great consequences of that. Not so many of them apply to women, I would say, because I think that we still tend to be penalized more than men do when our kids are running around in the background of a meeting. When a man is interviewed on the BBC and his kid walks in, it's adorable. When a woman is having a meeting and her kid walks in, it's like, why can't you control your kid? So this blurring of the space between public and private, between home life and work life is challenging and complicated to the extent that employees can make those choices and draw those lines. What do you want to show? What do you want to share? I think that's really important. Imagine if American workplace culture were to shift so that parents could feel more comfortable sharing their lives, needs, and out-of-work experiences, as well as the vast array of skills that come from being able to work two jobs simultaneously. Because while working parents may only have one job that provides financial compensation, parenting offers innumerable other payoffs, such as skills, experiences, perspective, and love. So let's work to ensure that parents are valued both at home and in the workplace. Can we move forward differently to foster greater equity? Even if we don't always understand fairness, we can and should demand. Let's embrace one another, single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. Season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast centers around topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion at work and is brought to you in partnership with Temple University's Fox School of Business Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, Sedwick. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like us, and take a few minutes to leave a positive review, which helps spread the word about what we're up to. And if you'd like to ask us a question about this episode, any previous episode, or anything having to do with diversity, especially diversity in the workplace, please call 844-888-8148 and leave a message with your question, or visit our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com where you can ask us a question, subscribe to our newsletter, and find out about our DEI services. Thank you to this episode's guests. Natalie Peterson, Sabrina Volpone, Lori Wu, Sunny Taylor, Rocky Mayner, Jeff Mayner, Christina Glickman, Joyce J.J. Jelks, Jackie Lipton, Shauna Hawking, Stu Cranes, Liz Brown, Deb Atella, and Leora Eisenstadt, and to our episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. Every episode of this season of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with Azaria Keys, Assistant Director of Sedwick, Co-Producer and Coordination Consultant, Leora Eisenstadt, Sedwick Director, Assistant Producer and Consultant, Zach James, Co-Collaborator and Marketing Manager, Paul Kondo, Assistant Producer and Editor, Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, audio technician and consultant, Stuart Kraintz, production and development assistant, and Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. The music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by me, 
Dara Lee's Lions in collaboration with Ramon Beeftink, who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week for a question and answer episode. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.